You know, we've had a lot of strange things happen in our world in recent weeks and months. Uh, so many disasters, natural disasters, fires, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, earthquakes. And um, some people ask, why doesn't God do something? When's he going to act? What's it going to take? And I think sometimes God just has a bigger plan than we can see or understand on this side. So Mark 15 verses 1 through 5 is an example of that when God obviously could have done something but had a greater plan. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest with his elders and scribes and the whole council held a consultation and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked, again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate wondered. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about the fact that I never, I never read anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus argued with anybody. He just spoke the plain truth. And either they heard it and received it, or they did not. But God could, certainly could have stepped in and done something mighty with Jesus in front of Pilate. But his plans were bigger, as we soon learned. And maybe that's the case with us sometimes. Maybe we just don't always see what he's doing or what the final picture is going to be in this life, in this world, at this particular moment, God's working out his plan. Let's bow together. Father, as we come tonight to ask questions and folks watching by television are asking questions, help us to learn and to grow through them rather than give up on you because of them. We are not wise. We don't see the whole picture. We don't know what you're up to. And we acknowledge tonight that you are the creator and we are the ones who are created. And so help us to trust and to live by faith and not by sight and to know and believe that you are our God and you do all things well. In Jesus' name, amen. A 52-year-old mother asked me this question in my former church. Lest you try to figure out who she is, it was my former church. Both of her children were not living for Jesus. Her son was using drugs, although he said he was not addicted and it was destroying his marriage. Her daughter had been living with several men, some of whom she had married, some of whom she had not. And this mother expected God to do something and bring them back to their senses. And she said she was willing for God to do whatever was necessary to get their attention, take away their health, take away their money, do anything to bring them back. But instead, both of her children were prospering and were actually more successful in worldly terms than she was. And she said they were both disgustingly healthy too. A high school senior asked 
if God would only do something to prove himself. He was struggling with his faith. A lot of kids who go off to college struggle with their faith. He was raised in a Christian home, but now when kids go off on their own, they question the faith that their parents had taught them. Did God really create everything or did man create God? Is Jesus really the savior of the world or was he just a kind man with good intentions who underestimated his opposition? Is the Holy Spirit really a comforter or is it just another name for self-encouragement? The issue he was struggling with was whether or not the Christian faith is really real or is it just a way for ignorant, simple-minded people to explain complicated living? That's what a lot of philosophers say Christianity is. Do people really need a fable to live by, he wondered, in order to have hope? That's what a lot of philosophers say. And so this young man prayed that God would do something, something unusual, something so miraculous that God would convince him that Christianity was real, that his faith in him was real. And you've done that too. You sought a sign and asked for um, a writing in the, handwriting in the sky or some miracle to happen, something so unexpected that it would... Um, drive you to believe in God. Neither of these people wanted God to do something just begging for an emergency rescue. They wanted God to do something tangible, something visible to validate their faith. And whether we admit it or not, we're a lot like these people. Non-believers want God to prove himself. If God would just do something miraculous so there would be no doubt then they would be willing to commit their lives to him and many Christians will not make a total commitment to God they'll only make a shallow or partial commitment until he does something earth-shattering miraculous and as a result these folks are running from church to church and worship style to worship style waiting for something new to happen, something miraculous to happen so they can know for sure that God is real and that he can be trusted with their lives. And these are the folks that say to God, God, just do something big and then I'll believe. Well, is there a word from God for such people who have questions like this and, and, and people like you and me perhaps? Well, I think there is and it's right here in the Gospel of Mark. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the arrest and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. They all describe the same event, but they do it through different lenses. They're not identical, but they're not contradictory. They're different because they're all written for different reasons, different purposes. Mark is writing for Christians who are being persecuted in Rome. Nero is persecuting them, and he believes if he can just squeeze them hard enough, this little band of Christians will dry up and blow away like dandelion in June. But with this in mind, Mark is writing to give hope. The Christians in Rome are asking, why doesn't God do something to prove himself to them and to prove to the Roman world that Jesus is alive and the Christian faith is real? And it's in this context that Mark tells the story of the crucifixion. So I want you to see some of the truths that are contained here. And the first one is, I want y'all to know something. God doesn't have to work to prove himself. God does not have to work to
to prove himself. Pilate could not decide what to do with Jesus. And this was totally uncharacteristic for Pilate because he was already described by Herod Agrippa as being inflexible and relentless and vindictive. Pilate was never indecisive. He, there was never a time when he didn't know what to do. He, he was often accused of executing people before their trials when he became personally convinced of their guilt. They didn't need a trial. He just had them killed. But now here's Jesus standing before him and he doesn't know what to do. He can't decide what to do with Jesus. Originally, the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of blasphemy. And that was a religious charge over which Pilate had no jurisdiction and no interest. He didn't care about Jewish affairs. So the Jews changed their charges and expanded it to include inciting rebellion, inciting a riot. And Pilate did have an obligation to make a judgment on that. Because if Jesus was guilty of inciting rebellion, the only viable response that Pilate had would be to declare him guilty and order execution. But the evidence against Jesus inciting rebellion was lacking. There was no evidence that Jesus had ever encouraged anybody to rebel. No proof. So Pilate asked Jesus, point blank, are you the king of the Jews? He was saying to him, are you trying to raise up the nation of Israel as its king and rebel against Rome? Prove to me who you are. And Jesus responds by saying, you have said so. You know, Jesus could have said, king of the Jews, yes, I am. If you're speaking spiritually, I accept that title. But if you're speaking of political implications, I'm not interested in inciting a rebellion against Rome. Jesus could have come out and answered Pilate's question. But the real question is, are you Pilate? Are you in front of Jesus? Are you going to believe in Jesus? You don't need any more evidence. What you need is to act on the evidence you already have. And that's the case with so many of us. You see, God is not in the habit of proving himself to anybody because he doesn't have to. God's not on trial. The Old Testament, if you look from Genesis to Malachi, God never defends himself. There is no proof of God in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's a given. The existence of God is a given in the Old Testament. And to have to prove God is to do away with faith. And to expect God to prove himself is to make us the object of faith and Jesus subordinate to us. Like we're telling God what to do, like we're telling Jesus what, no. God doesn't have to prove himself to us. That's getting things backward. We are, we are the ones proving ourselves and our faith to God. So God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. Secondly, when you and I require God to prove himself, we are placing ourselves in a superior position to God. It is faith which causes us to worship God. We are called to prove our faith God doesn't need to prove himself in any way, shape, form, or fashion to us. When I was in seminary, I was the pastor um, of Chaplain Fork Baptist Church in Chaplin, Kentucky. It was a small little country church, rural church on Saturdays and Sundays, and Susan and I would drive out on 
Saturday afternoon and stay in a mobile home next to this beautiful little white frame church. Have services Sunday morning, Sunday night. Susan would lead a choir practice after church on Sunday night. Go and have a sandwich at somebody's house and then drive back about 45 miles to the seminary by 10.30, 11 o'clock Sunday night. They were paying as much as they could, but Susan and I were living week to week. And one Sunday I saw a pulpit committee entering this small sanctuary, obviously coming from another church to observe me. And I found out the name of the church and discovered they were really big, sometimes running, running as big as 70 or 75 in Sunday school. And I heard they were paying as much as $100 a week for a really good preacher. And they stood out, those four men, I mean, you know, in a church of 65, 70 people, four strangers stand out like a sore thumb. And they were on the third row. And three of them sang... And one of them sat there with the whole time with his arms folded like this. He looked right at me and I figured out he was the chairman because he looked kind of mean. And I knew what he was thinking. He said, without so much as saying it, son, you do your thing and we'll see how good you are. So when I got up, I did my best. I preached loudly. I said everything twice. I even pounded the pulpit a couple of times. And afterwards, I met with the four men, and they asked me some questions. What would you do if, what do you believe about? And it was, obviously, it was obvious that the man who was folding his arms was the one in charge. And so I told them what I thought they wanted to hear. And when we parted, I was disappointed for three reasons. First of all, I knew it wasn't going to work out because my answers obviously didn't please the man whose arms were permanently glued together. Secondly, this is kind of funny, I learned they showed up at our church by mistake. <laughs> They'd gotten lost and couldn't find the church they were looking for of the preacher that they had heard was really good and it getting close to 11 o'clock and they decided it was better to stop somewhere than nowhere at all. And thirdly, I was disappointed in myself because I realized instead of taking the responsibility seriously of leading that congregation in worship that day like I was supposed to be doing, like I was called to do, I was a lot more concerned about pleasing those four men than I was about pleasing God. I'd been working all morning for those four men, that one man's arms, one man whose arms were fact fixed together with that expression, now boy, you impress me if you can. And I realized God is our audience every Sunday, every worship service. And he's a lot more important than any angry looking man with arms crossed. But how often do we come into God's presence just like that? God you please me, you make me happy, you do something for me, you do a miracle, perform for me, dance a jig for me, and maybe, maybe then I'll believe and I'll have faith. You see what we're doing? We're making God the servant. We make him perform up to our level of expectation. And that, my friends, is sin.
plain and simple. What possible demands can we, the clay, have on the potter? What possible demands can the paint have on the artist or the thread have on the weaver? It's crazy. How can we, the created, make demands of God, the creator, to prove himself to us? It's not necessary. God doesn't have to prove himself to us. And when we try to do that, we are assuming a position superior and God inferior to us. And my friends, that is backwards. The third thing, sometimes God does not have to prove himself because it's the process of asking questions and wrestling with life that builds faith. Isn't that true? Haven't you grown in your faith more in the difficult times, in those days when you're asking questions and wondering where God was and why he seemed silent? And yet you hung in there and you persevered and your faith grew. We may accept Jesus Christ in a moment, but mature faith does not develop overnight. Living faith takes time. It's a process of growing and learning and developing that we come to our own authentic faith. The story of the lady that I told you about at the beginning of the sermon had a happy ending, but not the kind you think. Eventually, she came back to the pastor and said, God never did answer her prayer of doing something to make her children straighten out, but the whole process had done something for her. She had grown in her faith as never before. She had prayed for her children as never before. If God had answered her prayers and proven himself the way she wanted, the way she thought he should, her faith would have remained weak because it would have always been dependent upon a crutch, always dependent upon God acting in the way she thought he should act when she thought he should act that way. Her faith would have been based upon God living up to all her expectations and solving all her problems, but now she could believe in God with or without a miracle, with or without God doing what she thought he should do. And that's when authentic faith begins to take root and grow. Friends, faith is built upon the miracle of the cross and the resurrection Our salvation is the only miracle we need. God does not need to perform a lesser miracle for our gratification. And to base our faith on anything less than what Jesus has already done in his death and burial and resurrection is to accept a lower form of faith. Because he's already done the most. He's already done the best. So you want God to do something? Well, let me tell you, God already has on the cross. That's all the proof you'll ever need. Why doesn't God do something for the flood in South Carolina or the wildfires in California or the hurricane uh, out in the Atlantic Ocean? God's done, he's already done everything. 
As a matter of fact, I believe that if, if God hadn't done some things, it could have been much worse. But it's up to us to believe and live the faith that He's given us and expects us to have because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Do you remember the interview after 9-11? And I think it was Bryant Gumbel, but I can't be sure, interviewing Billy Graham's daughter, Ann Graham Lotz. And he wanted to know where was God? Why didn't God? Gumbel said, why didn't God stop this 9-11? Why didn't he do something about it? You remember what Lotz said? She said, for years we've told God we didn't want him in our schools. We didn't want him in our government. We didn't want him in our finances. And God was a perfect gentleman. And he did just what we asked him to do. So we need to make up our mind. Do we want God or do we not want him? Because we can't just ask him in when disaster strikes. Bryant Gumbel was silent. Because he asked, why doesn't God do something? And Ann Graham Lott says, he has. But we have refused to see. That's what it takes. Eyes of faith to see and believe what God has already done in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Bow with me. Father, I know there are folks who will never believe because they want a scientific experiment that can be repeated. And they want to squeeze out faith and have proof. And so something bad happens in the world or in their families or in their own lives. And they shake their fist and demand to know where you are and why you were silent. God, even some of us here tonight have done that ourselves. Forgive us for our lack of faith, for assuming a position superior to yours, as if you perform according to our dictates, our instructions. Help us, Lord, to trust and believe no matter what. And when, when dark times come and when we have questions, not give up, but hang on even tighter and grow through them and see you working in the midst of those challenging times knowing that a faith that perseveres will grow stronger. And we want to be in that number. In Jesus' name, amen.